בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, great to be in Miami, ברוך השם, good to see you guys again, it's a good sign when I see the same faces two days in a row, or three times a week some of them, and only Fidel wasn't there yesterday, only Fidel wasn't there yesterday, we have to ask, we have to, and Sunday he wasn't there, we have to ask Fidel after this year why he wasn't here. How come he's not joining us for our shiurim? Maybe, maybe Fidel wasn't. Maybe Fidel, Fidel. You know what? I actually, know why Fidel wasn't there. Fidel is not an angry guy like us. So we had shiurim about anger. So he doesn't need to work on. He's already good. Oh Hashem, he's beyond it already. Oh Hashem. No comments. No comments. The different madriga. Hashem. Okay. As we do with the Divrei Kodesh, we see that each and every single, single shiur, we learn something new, something uh, exciting, something enticing, something mentally stimulating. And uh, many times in our shiurim, we mention stories about tzaddikim. Some of them uh, have been, were prophets, like Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham Avinu. Um, Isaiah, Zechariah, and so on. And some of them were uh, big uh, Chachamim, like Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yudanasi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and some even from recent generations, uh, whether it be Rav Vadia, Allah Shalom, or the Steiplagon, Chafetz Chaim. These names are Kodesh Kodeshim. These names are unbelievable. And uh, many times we say in the story, oh, such and such, yeah, he had Ruach HaKodesh. He had Ruach HaKodesh. And uh, it's very interesting. He had Ruach HaKodesh. Someone that had Ruach HaKodesh. As a matter of fact, I believe this parasha, this parasha has a uh, few people that are mentioned in this parasha, Parashat Be'alotecha, where Hashem says there was a couple of people in the parasha that He actually gave them uh, Ruach HaKodesh and prophecy. These are two different things. Two different things. The, uh, let's see. I remember correctly, there is in this parasha. Yes. In uh, chapter 11, in uh, Sefer Bamidbar, Book of Numbers, I have no idea how they got numbers from Bamidbar, some type of Christian creation or something, because Bamidbar means in the desert. Numbers means numbers, like integers and so on. Um, But anyway, uh, this is part of the exile that we're in. We have to... uh, deal with these strange names and uh, rules. But it says that uh, there were two people that uh, remained behind the the camp in chapter uh, 11, verse 26. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the second was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. They had been the recorded ones, but they had not been uh, they had not gone out of the tent. So, we see here 
ויישארו שני אנשים במחנה, שם האחד אלדד ושם השני מדד. ותנח עליהם הרוח, והמה בכתובים. says these people had רוח הקודש. שם גאים רוח הקודש. And we see this throughout different places in the Torah, that רוח הקודש is very much a... Uh, the ultimate prize. You guys should get it. You guys should all get רוח הקודש. So much fun. But it's very much, it's very much a, uh, something that's an integral part of our Torah. It signifies a level of closeness in Dvekut. Uh, Dvekut is like how glued you are to Hashem. But it's closeness to the highest level. There's closeness and then there's glued. Glued, obviously, it's a given you're, you're close. But glued means mamash, it doesn't separate. And in essence, that is the obligation of every Jew. The obligation of every human is to achieve becoming glued to Hashem. And by doing so, according to our sages, both Jew and Gentile can achieve Ruach HaKodesh. Now unfortunately today, since we're a generation of ignorance, every two seconds you say, oh yeah, yeah, that rabbi, yeah, it's Ruach HaKodesh. Who? Yeah, you know, the, the 26-year-old uh, rabbi, he remembered two gemarot by heart, so he has Ruach HaKodesh. Oh, you know, that rabbi, yeah, yeah, he's a tzaddik, yeah, yeah, he has Ruach HaKodesh. How do you know? He remembered my phone number by heart. I said, so does my iPhone. My iPhone knows the number of my heart. Does it mean it has Ruach HaKodesh? Oh, you know that rabbi? Yeah, yeah. No, see how big his beard is? He has Ruach HaKodesh. Why? He has a beard. I said, so does the goat. He has a beard. Doesn't mean he has Ruach HaKodesh. So, Rabotai Karim, Ruach HaKodesh is not something you buy at uh, 7-Eleven. Ruach HaKodesh is something that you can achieve. But, and we have instructions of how to achieve it. We have instructions, exact, precise instructions of how to achieve it. Where Rav Pinchas Eliyahu Vilna, Alav Shalom, when he wrote the book Sefer Abrit, initially they thought it was the Gaon Vilna. People who read the book, they said it's such genius, they thought it's the Gaon Vilna, not Rav Pinchas Vilna, because same place. They thought it was just the Gaon Vivina was just that there's no one else that can write like him. Such Kedusha. They said, Rav Pinchas, ooh, In Sefer Abrit, there's a chapter, chapter 11, Ma'amar 11, Perik uh, Shesh, the sixth uh, section. And he gives you exact, precise instructions of how to attain Ruach HaKodesh. But he, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He says, anyone that doesn't do this, doesn't have, go through this preparation, if you will. This is not even like to attain the whole thing. This is just a preparation to get there. You must have this. There's no like, oh yeah, but he got it. In a no, there is no other way. Which means that if anyone is missing any one of these ingredients, even a, a millimeter of one of these ingredients, maybe has gas, not Ruach HaKodesh. There is a headache, maybe. It's not Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh he definitely doesn't have. 
So, the fact that a person knows some things by heart doesn't mean anything. Baruch Hashem, it's good, he has a good memory, which we're going to talk about tonight. But it doesn't mean his Baruch Hashem. Today we're going to talk about, number one, what makes a person a, uh, a good student, a bad student, a good Talmud, a bad Talmud. What does the attributes that Hashem instilled in you, that are beyond your control, what's the benefit, what's the pros and cons of it? Somebody that's born with a good memory. It's a brain, it has a computer. Remember, there's good memory. It's a good, it's a great thing. Anyone that has any wisdom in the world, even if it's just a beginner's wisdom, knows that the best thing you can have is good memory. On the other hand, if you're, what if you're uh, born like a pumpkin? You have no memory, you have no nothing, everything that comes in has to be deleted 30 seconds later, like a beeper from the old days, if you guys know what beepers are. I think I'm the only one that probably knows. No, you know also. In the old days, we had beepers, 20 years ago. Huh? You had? Star Wars? Oh, you had beepers. Well, I'm not the old one. So, but the, the, the beeper would uh, delete everything shortly later, didn't keep anything. So, what if a person is born with a dlat, with a pumpkin head, nothing? He forgets everything. So, is it his fault that he's, he's not a Tamit Chacham? What about the fact that some people's brain is sharper? Naturally, they're sharper. Naturally, they're sharper people. And certain people, they're like dull. They're like the, uh, the knife. For some reason, I don't know why they still do this. To this day, every kitchen set, you know, the, 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 the knife sets, and not knife sets, the forks, knives, spoons, or whatever, you buy the whole set. For some reason, the knives, they're not even good enough for butter. Forget, I don't understand. Why do they still sell these knives? They don't cut anything. I tell my wives all the time, why don't you just throw these things out? They don't cut anything. Even the bread they can't cut. The bread that's cut already, they can't cut. I don't understand the thing. But anyway, somebody's brain sometimes is like this knife. Dull. Dull, dull, nothing. Just a... Uh, sometimes the brain is sharp. It's like, uh, like a diamond. You give him something, he cuts it up to 50 pieces. You're wrong here, you're right here, you're wrong here, you're right here, you're wrong here. Do, 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 do. Computer. So it's different types of students. If everything depended on natural skills, then technically we wouldn't have the free choice. Everybody that had good memory could be the next Moshe Rabbeinu. Everybody that has bad memory, guaranteed gain. No, it's not fair. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about these things in this. Uh, it's probably going to be more than one lecture. But ultimately, one of the topics that's going to be included at some point, I can't tell you when for two reasons. Number one, to keep the suspense, you keep coming to the shurim. And number two, because I honestly don't know uh, when we're going to mention it and how it's going to connect. But we're going to actually mention how to attain the exact precise instructions of how to attain Ruach HaKodesh. If you dare get it. If you have the courage to try to attain it. Now anytime 
you hear some of these uh, Christian speakers, especially the evangelical ones, Yimachshimam, that uh, write in their New Testament that only 144,000 Jews are going to survive at the end of times, meaning the rest of them are going to die or convert to Christianity. So those same enemies of Hashem, it's normal for them, it's normal for them to tell people that they have Ruach HaKodesh and they speak to angels and all types of stupid things. But you could tell that none of these people don't even know the definition of Ruach HaKodesh. And the reason why is because Ruach HaKodesh is a certain level of clarity. It's a certain level of clarity that you have on the world around you. On, on, on everything that's there. Someone can come to you and before they say anything, you already know everything they want to tell you. Someone wants to ask you a question, you know the question and the answer. Something's happening in Shemaim, you have an understanding of what's happening in Shemaim. In Shemaim, you have an understanding of what's happening in Shemaim. Someone is about to pass, you know he's going to pass, you tell him, listen, you have three hours. What three hours? I'm perfectly healthy, 26, 27 years old. Yeah. Say goodbye. Well, HaKod is a certain level of clarity that's supernatural. And these imbeciles say they have it. The reality is, is that in order to attain it, that means you had to have a certain level of glue, glueness, like closeness to Hashem, that it's mamash, you have perfected, you have perfected yourself. There's no such thing as bad midot for someone as Waha Kodesh. So if you see any of these people that are still talking about material, yeah, yeah, Hashem told me we should get a $65 million jet. Okay, you definitely do not have a Ruach HaKodesh because someone who has Ruach HaKodesh does not need a $65 million jet. And doesn't talk about it either. Someone who has a Ruach HaKodesh doesn't know what $65 million is, Bechal. He's so disconnected from material. The Gemara says that ever since the Chorban Bet HaMikdash, the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, all Hashem has in the world is four amot. All He has as far as space for Himself is four amot, six feet. Some say eight feet. What does it mean all Hashem? Hashem is no body, no, Im- no image, no, no, no likeness of an image. He doesn't take up space. What does it mean? Four amot. It says that Hashem Barach is the humblest of all. And according to Allah, in order for when we measure things, when the Gemara tells you, allowed, not allowed, allowed, not allowed, and so on and so forth, it doesn't just tell you yes or no. It tells you what is the minimum measure that it's allowed, a minimum measure that it's not allowed. So for example, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, I believe it's 105a, says, a per- in the Mishnah over there says, if a person writes, person writes on Shabbat, what is the minimum amount of writing that's Chilul Shabbat? What's the minimum? If he writes a word, is that Chilul Shabbat? If he writes a sentence, is that Chilul Shabbat? If he writes one letter, two letters, three letters, how much? So one Chacham says, if he writes two letters, Chachamim say, 
he writes two letters, Mechalet Shabbat. If it's two letters, if he writes one letter, it's not Chilul Shabbat. If he writes two letters, three letters, four letters, Chilul Shabbat. Then the Chacham says, no. If he writes one letter, it's Chilul Shabbat. Why? It's the last letter of the word. If it's the last letter of the word, he completed the word. He completed a book. Finished. If the one letter is a letter in the Torah, it's one letter. Chilul Shabbat. Why? The Torah without that single letter is not a Sefer Torah. He completed not only a sentence, the entire book with the one letter. But if it's just stuyot, if it's just nonsense, two letters. So it depends. So the Torah measures things by minimum and maximums. If he sowed, how many rounds of sowing? Is it one, is it two, is it three, and so on and so forth. So says Hashem, since the Chorban Bet HaMikdash, the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, all Hashem occupies is four Amot. Why four Amot? That is the minimum, that is the minimum amount of space that counts for Alakha. It's the minimum of space. So the Chachamim say, what does this really mean to us? It says that Hashem, after the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, when all of that Kedusha left the world, Hashem wanted to completely separate from this world and the materialism of this world to signify to us that if you want to become glued to Hashem, you too must separate from materialism of this world. You want to get close to Hashem? Know that every time you get close to materialism, you're getting further from Him. The more close you are to materialism, the further you are from Him. Meaning, if you are getting, you, you have a car. You have a car, you need to get from one place to the other. Okay, everybody needs a car. In this world today, you need a car. But if your car is your world, you're with like one of my neighbors, every Shabbat, the guy is a Goy, I believe. Every Shabbat, that, what's his day? He opens his garage. He opens his garage. Why? He leaves it open the whole afternoon. He takes out his car. He takes out his whole little tool kit. And he starts washing his car inch by inch for hours. Hours. You go to Beknesset. You come back. You go get from Incha. You come back. Mamash, it's almost to Arvit. He's washing the car for like hours. I don't know how. The, I, I don't understand. I look at the guy. I'm like, what is his skin? But for him, he thinks he's in Ghanaian and the whole day he's washing a car. You know, he's blowing on it to make sure that it's a, he sees his reflection on the blue color of the car. This is people today. He's so into his car, he turned it into an idol. That's Abu Dazara. This is a sense of Abu Dazara. It's a, it's a version of Abu Dazara. If that's your car, you're far from Hashem. Far from Hashem. If every time you see a nice guy, like, wow, far from Hashem, far from Hashem, a person is measured based on what he says wow about. That's who you are. Whatever you say wow about, that's you. That's you. If every time you hear about somebody making a lot of money, like, wow, look, this guy made so much money, that's you, you're a money guy. That's all you like, that's your life. That's who you are. That's your God. Money. Wow, look at this car. Oh, that's it. Here you go. It's another one. Here, here you go. Look, wow. Wow. 
Wow, look at this girl. Oh, there you go. You're, you're a noyafu. You are a uh, womanizer. Yeah, that's you. Wow, look at the, uh, this. Look at this. Look at... That's you. All those wows, that's who you are. You want to get to know yourself? That's you. Wow. Wow is you. You go to Shiu Torah. Wow, what a chidush. Ah, that's you. Now you care about something meaningful. How do you know if you care about something meaningful or not? How do you really know? On your day-to-day prayer. Now when there's tzarot, now when there's disaster, and it's obvious you're going to pray for for the disaster to go away. Everyone that's in the hospice center, as my dear friend Fidel tells me all the time, everyone in the hospice center is religious. Everyone in the hospice center believes in God. Everyone. Everyone that's on their deathbed in the hospice center believes in God. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when somebody found out somebody has cancer or someone lost everything and so on and so on. I'm talking about day to day. What do you pray for? 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 A car? You pray for more money? You pray for a new job? What do you pray for? That's you. What you pray for? That's you. That's who you are. That's your whole makeup. Oh, God, please. Please, Hashem, I love you so much. Please, make the stock go up. That's you. That's you. You think you're stuck. You're stuck. You, you should be, they should put you on CNBC as a ticker. Should make you into a ticker on CNBC. Put your initials. Why are $6.37? Why are $6.38? Ah, you have a buyer. Somebody bought you. Extra cent now. What do you pray for? That's you. That's who you are. Oh, Hashem, please make sure everybody likes me. Oh, that's you. There you go. You're a self-conscious person that cares too much about what everybody else thinks. That's you. Oh, Hashem, please make me closer to you. Please allow me to understand, to see, to understand, to to fulfill your will. Ah, that's you. Pray for something meaningful, Rabotai. Pray for something meaningful. Stop play, praying for shtuyot that you're going to throw out in a few months. Stop praying for stuff that's not going to be worth anything in a few months. Pray for something meaningful because that's you. That's you. There was once a guy that from the Hoppenheimer family and they did some deals to make sure they took control over the diamond industry. To such an extent, they cornered the market that the beers became the market for diamonds. And they controlled the price of diamonds by controlling the amount of how many diamonds enter the market. And anyone that wanted to be in the business, had to accept certain conditions by accepting whatever they send them each month. Each month, you accept whatever we send you. Without checking, we're going to send you $10 million a month. You want it or not? Otherwise, there's anything that you're going to get, you're going to get second hand, which means the price is much higher. Now, the, the, the people that started this whole ordeal, they're all dead. But at some point, I mean, you see some of the documentaries that were written, that, that were made about it, or the books or video or so on, 
you see that they had possession of by far the most valuable diamonds known to men. Huge pink diamonds and blue diamonds and yellow diamonds and green diamonds and things that are... I mean, a diamond in general, they convinced the world that a diamond is rare. We found out later on, it's a complete joke, it's not rare, but still people like to believe it is. Trust me, I have family in the business, it's not rare. But people want to believe it's rare, fine, no problem. But there are diamonds that are rare, these color diamonds, they are rare. The point is, is that the bigger the diamond, the more rare it is. The clearer the diamond, better quality it is, the the, uh, more rare it is, and so on and so forth. Are these Oppenheimers? That to this day there's mutual funds named after them, companies named after them, organizations named after them, buildings named after them. At some point they had the most valuable diamonds in the world. Now the minute they died and the worms started eating their body, how much did they enjoy those diamonds? the pink diamond and the yellow diamond and the green diamond and this diamond and that. How much did they enjoy that diamond? How much benefit did they get out of that diamond? You can tell them, oh yeah, but that, his, his name was on a building. Great. How much did he enjoy that his name was on a building? Oh yeah, but they, they started companies after. Okay, so how much did he really enjoy those companies that were after his name? He died. Meaning if he's dead, it's meaningless. Like all of the people that are investing an extraordinary amount of money and energy and so on to try to build their name, ask yourselves, for what? For what? Oh, to have uh, longevity. Of who? For who? Who's, who's going to care? You're not going to enjoy it. You're dead. You're gone. You're not here. The, the worms are using you for lunch and dinner. What, what's the... For what? What's the point? What's the, what are you doing it for? What's the whole point of, of, of investing your whole 70, 80, 90 years, however long you're alive, to build this longevity of who? Of what? You're dead. You're not going to enjoy it for somebody else to know. He doesn't care. No one cares whose name is on the building unless it's going to create more value, but he only cares about the value he creates, not because it's you. No one cares that it's a certain building is the GM building or the Trump building or the this building or the that building unless it creates more value, which 99 out of 100 times, it doesn't. So the guy that invested his whole life to make uh, his name Ford or whatever it is, who cares? He's dead. So that's the thing, Abu time when you're thinking about your future, when you're planning your future, when you're working for it today, pray for something meaningful. Something that's actually going to last beyond your life in this world. Because the building that you're asking for, you won't even enjoy it. I guarantee. Why? You'll be dead. By the time it's worth it, you'll be dead. That's finished. You're finished. Okay, so let's say you enjoy it for 20 years, that you have money out of it. Big deal. You're going to use all that money. The guy that has uh, Warren Buffett, he's got, I don't know, 70, 80 billion dollars. You think he's going to use all that money? Even if he spends... A billion dollars a day, a billion dollars a day, the amount of money that's coming in in comparison to coming out, he's still not going to run out of money. What are you going to do with all that money? What's the. Pray for something meaningful. 
Because even if you had huge success, lots of money, you, you can't use it anyway. Oh, no, but I'll be, I'll be secure. You'll be secure, secure with much less money. How much? Exactly what Hashem gives you, you'll be secure. Exactly what Hashem gives you, you'll be secure. Plenty of people are secure with $500 a week. And there's plenty of people that are not secure with $5 million a week. So, the first and foremost, when you see people that are materialistic, you should know that that, by default, distances that those people from Hashem. Why? Because Hashem Himself says, I'm only occupying four amot. Six feet. Six feet. That's it. Meaning, I'm distancing myself from material. To tell you, you want to get close to me, you have to do the same thing. So, by default, a person that wants to get close to Hashem has to know that he has to learn. He has to become what's called a Talmid. Talmid. Talmid is a student. Now, every one of the giants, whether it's Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rav Ovadia, the Stipler Gaon, the Chafetz Chaim, the Vilna Gaon, anyone you mention. Every single one of those people, you ask them, what are you? It says Talmid. Everybody else calls them Talmid Chacham. But they themselves call themselves Talmid. Why? I'm a student. Why? Because to a person that wants to know the truth about Hashem knows that it's a never-ending process of learning. You must become a Talmid. So today we're going to learn, first part, is what will make you a Talmid? What kind of Talmidim are there? Mishnah in Avot, Hei Tetvav, 5.15, the same number as the number of prayers that Moshe Rabbeinu, the ultimate Talmid, prayed to Hashem in Parashat Vayit Hanan to let him come to, to, to Eretz Yisrael, and Hashem said, no, Rav Lach, enough, don't pray anymore. The ultimate prayer for Moshe Rabbeinu, we know is higher than anyone else's. Because when Miriam got Sarat, all of Am Yisrael, millions of people prayed for her. Millions. Didn't work. Didn't work. Then Aaron Akoen comes to Moshe. He says, it's our sister, it's our blood. Please pray for her. Moshe says five words. One sentence. Immediately she's cured. Meaning his prayer, his single prayer, is more significant than millions and millions of people that prayed. So imagine 515 prayers from the same person. And still Hashem says, Rav Lach, enough, don't pray anymore. Why? I have my reasons. What did Moshe do? He finished. He didn't do it. Why is it Talmid? He's Talmid. All he wanted to do is to learn more and more about Hashem. Hashem says no. He says, okay, if that's what Hashem wants, that's the answer. So the Mishnah here says, Translation. There are four types of students, four types of Talmidim. 
Excuse me, I have a cold. There are four types of students, four types of Talmidim. Meaning, Hashem created four types of people. No more, no less. Just like we talked about in the previous Mishnah, about four types of people that have different types of anger, how they control their anger. Guy gets angry really quickly, but he cools off quickly, and so on and so forth. Here he says there's four types of people also, character traits, in a student. First one being one who grasps quickly and forgets quickly. He gets the information. You tell him, first shot he understands everything. He comes to the shoe, he knows everything you just said. But he forgets quickly. His gain is offset by his loss. What does it mean? He comes to the shoe, he understands everything you said. computer. What's the problem? Tomorrow he forgot everything. Tomorrow he's back to driving on Shabbat. Tomorrow he still doesn't remember. He doesn't remember Moshe Rabbeinu is miskin. He says, what, you mentioned Moshe yesterday? Really? Psh, wow, I don't remember. He said, yeah, that's why you should bring a notebook. The second one, it says his gain is offset by his loss, meaning his gain of the fact that he uh, grasped the information quickly. He loses that gain. Why? Because he's going to forget it anyway. Second type of student, one who grasps slowly, takes time. He needs to hear the same thing over and over again a few times, takes a while. He needs to stop, like me, the video, let me write it five, one more minute again, again. Hear it, uh, again, five more minutes now. Hey, again, rewind. That's why YouTube was created for people like me. I have to hear the same thing. Oh, if it's a good point, I have to hear it like 87 times to make sure it goes in here. One who grasps slowly, but forgets slowly. His loss is offset by his gain. Why? This guy takes him a while to get it. But once he gets it, it's safe. It's in there. He's going to forget things just naturally over time. But in general, he keep, most of the stuff is staying in there. It says his loss is, is offset by his gain. The fact that it takes him a while to get the information is not so bad. Why? Because the gain is that he keeps it once he gets it. Once he gets it, he keeps it. The third is one who grasps quickly and forgets slowly. This is a good portion. And some says, some say, the, their, uh, their version of the Mishnah, say, this is a Chacham. This is a wise person. The guy not only gets the information like that, but it's staying in there. This one, he got a good portion from the creator of all creations. Hashem gave him ooh, talent. He gave him something special. He gave him a gift. The Rabbi Tzchak Utnel said that the stories about people like the Gaumi Vilna that completed the Shas when he was like 12 or something like that, or maybe even sooner, or that the Rabbi Lava Shalom already knew half the Shas when he was uh, 10 years old, he says, if it was up to me, Rabbi Utnel says, I would delete these stories. 
I would delete these stories. These stories make people weaker. The average person is not like that. The average person, he's not, he's not, he's not a genius. The average person's average. So after he hears that Rav Vadya was a giant already when he was six years old, he was already a Chacham. When the Vilna Gaon, when he was already five, six years old, he was already probably bigger than any rabbi in the world today. It makes the average person think, ah, I can't be like him. Because the average person thinks, oh, I have to be born that way in order to be that way. He says, this is wrong. It's completely not true. He says, if it was up to me, I'd delete those stories. I would tell the stories of the rest of the Chachamim, the majority of the Chachamim, that were the exact opposite. They toiled and toiled and toiled for the Torah until they broke it and they became Chachamim. Some of the greatest that ever lived were born with a pumpkin head. Literally, that was their nickname. The Marsha. The Marsha, they called him pumpkin head. The Marsha, one of the giants of giants, they called him pumpkin head. Why pumpkin head? Said nothing. It goes in, nothing. It's empty. Empty. Nothing. Empty. What happened? He didn't stop. He didn't give up. He sacrificed his life. The Maram, Maram, I'm sorry. The Maram. He didn't stop, didn't finish, didn't do, didn't do, 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 do. Sacrifice his life, no sleep, constant studying, no this, no that, lower, ah, ooh, ah, mamash, sacrifice his life. What happened eventually? He became the number one student for the Khatam Sofer. Number one student, one of the Gedolei Adol. One of the top people, he became one of the Gedolei Adol himself. So Rav Yitzchak says these stories about how people are born smart doesn't help people. It's good, it's nice. It's nice to see that you know, Hashem gave certain gifts to certain people. But if you try to motivate somebody to study, don't use that story. That's discouraging more than encouraging. Why? Because the guy is looking in the mirror and says, I'm not that guy. I don't know the shas. I don't even know what shas means. I don't even know how to write shas in Hebrew. I'm lost. Okay, might as well not start. Let me go back to the stock market. So a person that grasps quickly and forgets slowly, this is a person that got a good portion. He got a gift from Hashem. What does it mean to get a gift from Hashem? And then lastly it says, Someone who grasps slowly and forgets quickly. This is a bad portion. This is the exact opposite. Not only does it take a long time to actually understand, but once he gets it, he forgets it anyway. This is a bad portion. But it could also be a matana. It's a bad portion, but it could also be a present. Which we'll get to in the other The Gemara in Masechet Eruvin says that one of the Gedolei Ador, his name was Rabbi Preda. Rabbi Preda had many, many students. doesn't say how many he had, but everyone knows he had many students. But it doesn't talk about his other students. It doesn't talk about his other students. What does it talk about? It talks about this one student. This one student, his brain 
I don't think it existed. I think Hashem just decided not to give this guy a brain. He gave him cells. He gave him some neurons or something in there just to make some noise. But brain he didn't give him. Why? But we played that look to this person. He saw this. He's not getting it. So he decided to take it on himself. He's going to teach him chavuta. He's going to teach him one-on-one. But in order to teach this person, every single thing he had to, he wanted to teach him, he had to teach him 400 times before he got it. 400 times. A, 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 400 times, imagine. Just saying A 400 times, you already get angry. Thinking about me, thinking about 400 times saying I'm already angry. Imagine he has to teach everything 400 times, the same thing. In the beginning, Hashem created the heaven and the earth. Okay. In the beginning, Hashem created the heaven and the earth. Okay. Imagine that such a thing 400 times. 400 times. But he did it. The Tanaim were able to perfect their midot. Lack of patience and temper and things like that. You don't get to be a Tano with such things. Anyway, one day he tells the student, listen, today I have an appointment, so we have to be on point. At 400, you have to get it today. He got to 400. So credits, you got it? For the no. Was what? But we did it four hundred times. Like you, every day you get it four hundred times. You get it. A a a a a a b b b b b b b c c c c c aleph bed gimel dalit four hundred times finished kapata no no. He says I didn't get it today. He goes why not? What happened today? What what changed into tonight? What happened? He says you know for the to be honest with you, ever since you told me. That uh, you're in a, you know, we have you have to go. The whole time I thought maybe he's gonna go now. Maybe he's gonna go now. Maybe we're not gonna get to four hundred. Maybe we're not gonna get to four hundred. So the whole time you're saying it, all I can think about is you're gonna leave. So I couldn't concentrate. So after four hundred times, I didn't get anything you said. What do you do at that point? At that point, I kick the kid out of the sky. Tell him don't ever come back. That's what I do. It's four hundred times. That's why I'm not gonna be playing that. What does Rabbi Preda do? He says, you're right. Let's start all over again. He goes, yeah, but for the right, you have to go. I'm not going. Appointments canceled. We are here to learn Torah. We're going to sit here until you learn Torah. 400 more times. The heavens were so impressed, the Shemit Barach was so impressed with how Rabbi Preda broke his own midah, his own natural character trait that had an extraordinary amount of patience itself broke to even a higher level. The fact that he was able to teach him 400 times to begin with, when he's the Gdolado and this one is Ktanado. Imagine, the biggest rabbi in the world is teaching Aleph Bet to the biggest fool in history. Imagine this, and now you're going to work overtime. With who? The same guy. Why? Because he wasn't listening. Not because he's a good student, because he's a bad student now. Even in heaven, they were so impressed, at the end of 400 times again, meaning 800 times, a bat call came from Shemaim. And so, Preda, you have achieved something great. And we're going to reward you. What we're going to reward you? 
You have one of two choices. Either the whole generation you live in is going to get to Allah Abba. We give everyone Allah Abba. Or you're going to live 400 years. When you play that set, of course, everyone gets Allah Abba. In the heavenly voice, uh, Bat Kol said, since you cared about my people, that everyone's going to get Allah Abba, you get both. And he lived 400 years. He lived 400 years, and everyone got Allah Abba. So some people ask, how come the Bat Kol didn't come to the kid? How come the Bat Kol didn't come to the kid that needed to hear everything 400 times? It's a good question, no? I asked that question. You know why? Because the Bat Kol didn't want to repeat it 400 times. <laughs> but you see, Rabotai, that the greatness, the greatness of Rabbi Preda, the greatness of his students was where? In the lowliest place. From the worst student in history. That's where Torah came from. That's where Torah came from. And that's why the Gemara in Masechet Nedarim, page 41a, it says, En ani ela bedat. A person that's, uh, uh, that's uh, poor, what is he poor with? He's poor with knowledge. What does that have to do with anything? Because in the Gemara, later on, that same Gemara Nedarim, 81a, it says, Be careful in your dealings with the poor, because from there is where the Torah is going to come from, the poor. So the Gemara asks, what, what's the poor? What, the poor people? What, Hashem is only going to give Torah to poor people? That's not fair. What if the guy is rich? It's not his fault that he's rich, but Hashem gave him the money. It's not for that he's rich. Uh, his father made a lot of money. So what? Just because he's rich, he's not going to be. Uh, uh, he's not going to be rich. He goes no. Poor Rabbi Ephraim says no. Poor is referring to what? Poor and dot the fools. People don't know anything. From there is going to come the Torah. Meaning the ones that start with nothing but toil until they break all of their negative midot in order to attain Torah. That's where Torah is going to come. Rabbi Akiva, Alava Shalom, at 40 years old, at 40 years old, he didn't have knowledge of the Aleph Bet. He was divorced with a kid, didn't know Aleph Bet, didn't know how to read, didn't know how to write. His wife, Rachel, Alea Shalom, said to him, no, I'm going to marry you only if you go learn Torah. He says, for you, 18-year-old beautiful beauty queen, of course, I'll learn whatever you want, no problem. But then after they get married, he went to, he had to go to kindergarten. He had to go to kindergarten. In the beginning, they started making fun of him. Like, hey, uh, Saba, Saba, Grandpa, Grandpa. They thought he's the Grandpa. They know he's one of the students. So, oh, I'm not Grandpa. I'm here to learn all of it. They started making fun of him. Little kids made fun of him. Little kids are mean sometimes. Little kids are mean. So they made fun of Rabbi Akiva. He's skinny. He ran away. He said, I'm not going back. Not going back. Call me Saba. So she said, "Okay, fine. Go take a uh, plant and plant it on a donkey. Make a nice 
plant, put all the plants there, and walk around the city. This is what he did. Planted a donkey, uh, planted a plant on top of a donkey, a whole little concoction. It looked weird for people to see this, like a, a walking garden on top of a donkey. The first day, everybody said, oh, yo, yo, look, 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 there's a garden on top of that donkey. Oh, is he born that way? Where did he get the donkey? Where did he get the donkey like this? Where did he get the garden like this? Everybody's asking questions. Second day, half the people saw. Third day, ten percent of the people. After a week, eh, nobody cared. After he comes home, Rachel asks Rabbi Akiva, "No, did everybody say anything? Everybody compliment your donkey?" He goes, "No, to be honest with you, business is bad. Nothing. Nobody cared today." She goes, "You see." What's the difference? He says, you're right. After the first day, first day, everybody looked at me. Look, 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 look. Second day, not so many. Third day, less. After a week, nobody cared anymore. Nobody cared anymore. She goes, you know why they didn't care? Because they got used to you. Same thing with the, with the yeshiva. You're going to learn Aleph Be'er with the kindergarten. In the beginning, Saba, Saba, they're going to make fun of you. After a little while, they're going to get used to you. But still it wasn't easy. This is the first part of the story. It still wasn't easy. Still have to go to... Okay, so let's see. he went back. The story goes, he went back to kindergarten, learned Aleph Bet. Was that, does that mean just because he passed his first test, that means it was easy from that point on? No? Absolutely not. So what does it say? He wanted to give up. He wanted to give up constantly. One day, uh, in his weak moments, he went to a river, and he was thinking about, I'm, I can't, it's not coming in. I'm learning, and it's not coming in. Aleph, Aleph, Bet, Bet, Gimel, Gimel. After, what did you do say again? Nothing. Empty. He wasn't like some genius that he just got it two seconds. He didn't know. He wanted to give up. So he went to the river, thinking, meditating, thinking, meditating, thinking, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? I promised my wife, I have this whole marriage is dependent on it. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Akiva sees a rock in the river with a perfectly round hole right inside it. And the water is streaming through it. It's like, wow, what a hole. Such a beautiful symmetrical hole. How, how, this hole, how made this hole such a precision? It's like today you have equipment, you have all this technology, you can make whatever you want. 3D printers, you can print the rock. Here you have a rock, huge rock, and all of a sudden the rock has a perfectly symmetrical, perfectly round hole. Rabbi Akiva was amazed. How did this huge rock have this hole? One of the people says, don't you realize it's the water? Because the water made the hole. Yeah, the water made the hole. So then Rabbi Akiva did a kalvachomil. He did the accounting on himself. He says, if the water that's soft, with enough pressure and persistence, can make a hole in a rock that's hard, then of course the Torah that's fire can make a hole in my brain that's soft. Can enter it. Can overcome it. Because it's fire. If the rock can get a hole from the water, I can learn Torah. And he went back and he learned Torah. 
צדיקים רבי עקיבא. But these tests didn't end. These tests didn't end, רבותיי. It's not a simple thing. And the Mishnah here tells us that there are certain things that are up to you, there are certain things that are not up to you. First and foremost, if you are one of these students, you have to understand where you stand. You have to understand where your battle is. Each one of us, pretty much once you contemplate it, you probably know where you stand, which one you are. I know sometimes I see certain people that come to my shiurim, they fit perfectly. I know which one is which. Well, you see, a, you see a person after a while, you see which one is which, what kind of questions they ask, what kind of response they have, how they change. Like I told you yesterday, a couple of stories, two different people don't know each other, they weren't even in the same shiur. One shiur, finished. Tshuva, tefillin, everything. Other people have had shiurim, Two years, still nothing changed. Still nothing changed. It has nothing to do with intellect, though. Nothing to do with intellect. If anything, the ones that haven't changed have more intellect than the ones that did. So here the, the Mishnah says there are four types of students. The first type we're going to go into. It says a person that grasps quickly and forgets quickly. His gain is offset by his loss. So, Rashi says, one who has a quick intellectual grasp, but a poor memory, will never acquire a large fund of knowledge. The advantage of his good mind is offset by his forgetfulness. This is the pshat. This is the basic understanding of it. He's got a good mind, it's sharp, but terrible memory, he's going to lose it all. However, such a person can overcome his weakness through constant review, and thus capitalize on his, gra- on his crisp, quick grasp, the Tiferet Yisrael says. Now even if one forgets his learning due to weak memory, he should not become dissuaded or discouraged. For the act of studying Torah in itself is of significance even if he retains very little. Meaning that Torah is not like learning some other secular subject where if you know it, good. If you don't know it, you're lost. You study five hours of math, you're going to get five hours worth of knowledge. If you forgot the knowledge, you have to study it all over again. You gain nothing. With Torah, it's very different. First and foremost, whether you remember it or not, you still get the reward for those five hours that you learned. Second of all, the Torah specifically tells us a number of times. David HaMelech tells us in Tehillim 19.8, that it's a testimony of Hashem, making the simple one wise. David Melech makes literally a guarantee. There's a verse in the Torah, there's a couple of them obviously, that says there's a literal guarantee, guarantee in the Torah, that in regards to wisdom, it's a gift from Hashem, nothing else. 
Hashem can make anyone wise. How? Learning Torah. Anyone can become a Talmud Chacham. Anyone. Literally anyone. But at the same token, just because someone has some natural skills that make them sharper, is not going to make them uh, more likely to be a Talmud Chacham. Because if he doesn't overcome his Yetzirah, it's all, it goes against him. One prime example of it that you see in reality is you see many of these people that are the biggest atheists in the world. The famous atheists like Dawkins and, uh, and, and the rest of his heretic friends. All of those people, they're not stupid. They're stupid in reality as far as understanding the difference between truth and false and, and understanding the purpose of this world. They're, they're foolish when it comes to that. But stupid they're not. They, can, they have brain powers that could uh, you know, beat the best of them with certain aspects, certain subjects. So the Maharal, the Maharal and Midrash Moel say something different. Say something different. Unlike the first opinion, Rashi says that this person is uh, the fact that he grasps information quickly and forgets quickly is uh, it's a weakness that he can overcome. The Maral and the Midrash both say that actually it's the opposite, meaning that. In the first argument, it says that, what's the weakness? The weakness is he's going to forget everything. He's going to forget everything. He's got a good mind, but he's going to forget everything. The Maharal says, actually, the weakness is that he remembers, that he learns quickly. That's the weakness. Not that he forgets everything. Why? Because he grasps quickly, therefore he forgets quickly. Meaning, that a person did not respect the Torah enough, and therefore he learned it quickly, Khafif. He didn't delve into it, commit it to memory, commit it to his heart, figure out how it applies to his life, and so on. He just breezed through it like it's a non-fiction book. It says, because his brain works fast to retain it, it's going to work fast to lose it as well. He forgets quickly because his initial grasp of the material was rapid but shallow. Now this explains why there are certain kids, young kids, that are born with superior intellect. You know, they go to these advanced placement classes sometimes. You have kids that have a good brain and they put them in like special uh, education type of classes where they're advanced. Like a, uh, you know... Everybody else is taking, let's say, fifth grade math. They're already learning college courses. Because in that particular subject, or could potentially be in many subjects, they're so advanced their class. There's some people that, you know, they're born with such a gift. At 10 years old, they already finished college. Serious. They finished college. They go to universities. They already get their PhD when they're 13, 14 years old. Some major, major minds were born that way. 
and became uh, you know a national sensation of how, how genius they are. Still to this day, there's a uh, quite a few kids in the world today that uh, you see that how they communicate and their level of intellect. It's truly unbelievable that a ten year old, eleven year old has this brain. How much knowledge he has? I mean, seriously, they teach. I mean, some of them are at levels where they teach in college at 13, 14 years old. Literally, geniuses. But when it comes to Torah, this doesn't always help. Why? If the youngster grasps quickly, but forgets quickly, this could potentially be a problem. Why? Because he forgets quickly because his initial grasp of the material is rapid and shallow. And that's why this, these gifted kids end up falling behind the less gifted ones later on in life. Not at that point. When they're 13, 14, 15 years old, they're a little Einstein. Everybody thinks, that, oh, this guy's going to cure cancer. This kid's going to cure AIDS. This guy's going to cure life. He's going to cure death. They're going to cure everything. When they're 13, 14, they become a national sensation and their parents are patting their sums on the back as if it has something to do with them. Oh, yeah, look at my kid. He's a genius. Yeah, it has nothing to do with you, Abba. Hashem gave it to him. It has nothing to do with you. Yeah, but it came from me. No, it didn't. Why? Because you're a vessel to, to bring life to the world? It means nothing. It has nothing to do. Hashem gave him no knowledge. Hashem can take it too. But... When it's hot and it's on the news and so on, people are excited. What happens though? If this kid misuses his gift and is not taught proper studying uh, uh, and efforts and, and, and proper midot, then he can fall behind his less intellectual friends. Why? Because he never actually learned the knack of concentration and good study habits. Because he was able to retain everything really quickly. So when things became much more complex, when things became much more advanced, where the rest of the population is now caught up, he's nothing special anymore. Why? Because he didn't capitalize on that gift that he had at 12 and 13 and 14 years old. In fact, it became to his detriment. Because he got everything so quickly... He never developed it. This answers the uh, big question of how people always spend time being jealous of other people that are talented. They're born with a talent. I remember when I was in school and uh, I went to public school in New York and uh, there was this kid named Trevor. Trevor Francis. And Trevor was unbelievably fast. And also very good strength, strong guy, and extremely athletic. And we were on a football team together, and I used to like football, American football. And I used to play football when I was a kid. And I remember... The favorite play I've ever had in my life, watching all the football games that I wasted my life watching in the NFL and and uh, other one, college and high school, and I played and so on. My favorite play of all time was watching Trevor Francis on the five yard line on the on his own, on his own team five yard line take a sweep to the left, somehow break through twenty people, 
both teams and run 95 yards all the way to the opposite side of the team and score a touchdown. The way the run was, I was on the sidelines watching this like a fan. Even though I was one of the players, I wasn't playing in that play. It was an unbelievable run. And I can never forget this run. Every time I would visualize the thing, I would constantly like visualize this play. This play, for some reason, had some type of effect on me. And I thought, this kid, ah, he's definitely going to the NFL. He's definitely going to be something. He's definitely going to be the best. Do, 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 do. Guess what? Became nothing. At least in high school, he became a big zero. Why? He took the talent to his head. And instead of taking advantage of this talent, he started missing practice. Why? I'm talented. I don't need to practice. I can run faster than anyone else in, in the league. I'm faster, I'm stronger, I'm this, I'm that. I don't need to practice. You guys need to practice. And he was right. We did need to practice. We didn't have this talent. But without practice, you stay exactly the same and everyone else advances. And before you know it, you're actually holding the team back. You're the problem. You and your talent. And little by little, you got thrown off the team. Eventually got thrown off the team. Why? His talent became a waste of talent. And you know how many Trevors I saw in my life? Tons. Tons of Trevors. Number one, I saw him on a football team because every year you have a new recruit. Every year you have a bunch of a new class. And every class has a few guys that are extremely talented, that are really, really fast, like lightning speed, and they're huge, and they're this, and they're that. And the basketball team, on the football team, on the baseball team, there's always a new class full of talent. There's a bunch of guys that are average Joes that like to play the sport. But there's always like one or two Michael Jordans. There's always, at every class. But there's not that many guys that are actually going to make it. Why? Because it has nothing to do with talent. Talent is maybe, maybe 5% of, of, of the whole equation of whether you're going to succeed or not. 5%. What's the other 95%? Perseverance, persistence, effort, never giving up, building yourself up, going through the resistance, making it happen even when it's going against you, and so on and so forth. Hard work in so many words. Hard work. That's the 95%. 5%? Good for you. But anybody that ever succeeded in life and had employees and so on will tell you, I'll take one hard worker over a thousand talented ones that are lazy. One hard worker over a thousand talented but lazy. Why? Talented. What do I care about your talent? You never show up to work. You're always late. You're a bigger headache than I need. Who needs you? And that's the mistake that I remember making initially when I first started my company. I was looking for really talented people. It's a mistake. Don't look for talented people. Look for hard workers. Happens to be the most hard workers in today's age are foreigners in America. From Indian heritage, from uh, Mexicans, Spanish, Israeli, Americans in general, like the little, uh, you know, uh, 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 white, regular, traditional Americans grew up in uh, New York and Brooklyn, those areas, 9 out of 10 of them, Maybe you can hire them to collect the garbage. Other than that, you can't hire them for anything else. Why? They don't want to do anything. 
They want to get $150,000 a year just for coming in because they saw a Google video. They call them the millennials, these kids. Seriously, I had a bunch. I had 135 kids work for me. Trust me, I know. I know I know what it means with employees. They don't want to work. They want to collect the money for no reason. They want to collect money for no reason. You want to tell them, okay, go get a coffee. No, why? Let me get a coffee? You know what kind of college degree I have? I said, take your college degree and get coffee with it. That's what I can. That's what I need you for. I'm paying you to get me coffee. I'm paying you to make a call. Whatever it is. They have conditions. People have conditions. Like they only want to work under certain conditions. What's the conditions? I work for you. Yeah, but you're 19 years old and you still don't know how to add one to one and one. Yeah, but I have a college degree. For what? Communication. Okay, communicate with the guy selling coffee to give me one and you give him the dollar. Go communicate. So, I have a lot of experience with dealing with employees. And I'm telling you, from experience, you want to succeed, find hard workers, not talent. Talent, dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. If you're lucky enough to find talent and hard work, ooh, but most of the time, the guys that have the talent don't want to work hard. In this generation. In this generation, they don't want to work hard. You see the same thing also in a big reason is because the perception of hard work has changed. And really, when you tell people to work overtime, they look at you like they have, you have six heads. Like, you're going to pay me extra for working overtime, right? Like, it's all about compensation. Like, oh, so you're only going to work hard and overtime because I'm going to pay you. Not because you actually care to keep your job. And these types of people are very hard to succeed with. The same type of mentality is very hard for them to succeed in anything in general. Why? Because they misuse their gift. They misuse their talent. And I remember in high school, I saw a bunch of these kids that each one of them, I thought, this guy, he's definitely going to the leagues, to the big leagues. He's definitely going to be something. And one after another, didn't make it. And the funniest thing is, the most amazing thing is, is the ones that I thought, this guy, I mean, everyone knew he doesn't have any talent. But he was hard worker, those guys made it. The ones that didn't have much talent, but were hard workers, they made it. They made it. So, the sages are explaining here is that Yatsas that his gain is offset by his loss, in this particular regards actually means that the reason why he's losing is because of his gain. Because he's grasped, he has the talent, he actually lost because of it. He used, he misused it, and it turned, instead of being into a potion of life, it became a potion of death. The talent became his own poison. When it comes to learning Torah, a person needs to know that there are few things that Torah says. There is only one way to attain them. No two ways. One way to attain them. What's the way? Mesirut nefesh. Meaning, sacrifice. Sacrifice. What does sacrifice mean to you? Sacrifice means, what? You stay an extra 15 minutes? You try a little harder until you break a sword. What does sacrifice mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means in the Torah. 
Sacrifice means you're willing to put your life on the line. Whether that life on the line is a moment of truth, live or die, or life on the line means your entire 70, 80, 90, 120 years you're going to live. Life on the line. That's the only way you're going to attain it. One of those things, Torah says, you want to you want to succeed to get olam haba, you must sacrifice your life. You must have mesirut nefesh. You want to get olam haba, you want to get to Gan Eden, the things, the nice things over there, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon, Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Imenu, Rachel, Chana, you want to go there? You must sacrifice your life. How much of your life? Everything, from beginning to end. From beginning to end. Why? If you only sacrifice 70 years. 70 years. But on the 71st, the 71st in a minute, you decide to go and worship an idol. 70 years, you're going to Beknesset, you're learning, you're doing, you're the best. You're like a little Moshe Rabbeinu in the neighborhood. They call you little Moshe. Little Moshe, come, come. Give us a chidush, give a chidush. And seven years and one minute, seven years and one minute, you start praying to J.C. Penny. How much is the first seven years worth? Zero. Big zero. Why? You're going to end in the same place as J.C. Penny for how long? Forever. Forever. The fact that you actually did good for seven years officially means nothing. Because you finished on the bottom. You sold out. You sold out Hashem, Hashem. So when it comes to Olam Abba, Hashem says, sacrifice your life. Which life? The whole thing. Until you die. Until you die, you're not allowed to be tired. You're not allowed to be tired in Judaism. Forget about being tired. Forget about being... Obviously you're going to be tired though. So what does it mean not be tired? Meaning you're not allowed to exercise this tiredness. Oh, I'm too tired to do mitzvot. Oh, I'm too tired to do tshuva. Oh, I'm too tired to, uh, to, to pray. Oh, I'm too tired to learn. You're not allowed to be tired. Get up! Why? This may be the last minute. This may be the last minute. If Sarai Menu, Sarai Menu got tired. She got tired when the Malachim came. The three Malachim came and Abraham was miskin, was in pain. He just didn't me loud three days before. He's in so much pain, miskin. It's the worst day in history. Why? On top of the fact that it's me loud, third day is the most pain. I don't know, I don't remember. But some other people know. But on top of that, on top of that, on top of that, it's the hottest day in the history of mankind. Hashem took a part of the Shemesh, a part of the sun, out of the Nartik, out of the shell that it's at. Mamash, it was 250 degrees. Now, if you're hot, like this, so hot, what do you want to do? You want to hide air conditioner, ice, another air conditioner, more ice. You want to hide in a shell and then a camp. Now, if Avraham Avinu justifiably said, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm in pain, leave me alone, and didn't go get the angels. Would he still be Avraham Avinu? No. If Avraham Avinu, with all of his pain that he had to endure, brought the Malachim home, and he said, listen, honey, no, go get this, go get this, make them cakes, make them this, make them that. And Sarai Menu says, no, no, come on. Chalas Avraham, I'm tired. 
I'm tired, I got all this, I got this, I got stress, I'm uh, 90 years old already, I don't even have a kid, leave me alone, ah, I'm 90. 89 years old, no, it's time, I'm retired. You cook for them. You go make them tea. Avram, you make them tea. You make them, I'm tired, I'm 89 years old. If Sarai Menu said I'm tired, if Sarai Menu said I'm tired, would she be Sarai Menu? No. She'd be the woman that got tired that um, Avraham Avinu was married to at some point. If they even mention her. Rabbi again, Allah Shalom says, you're not allowed to be tired as a Jew. You're not allowed. Why? This may be the moment. This may be the moment where you're Moser Nefesh, you're sacrificing. The Shem says, ah, you're part of my Torah. So first and foremost, Rabotai, a person that wants Olam Abba, must know it requires Mesirut Nefesh. There's no time to be tired, even when you're tired. You go to sleep because you have no choice, not because you enjoy sleeping. Second thing the Gemara says, you want to attain it, must require sacrifice. What is it? Living in Eretz Yisrael. You want to live in Eretz Yisrael? You can know. It's not easy. It's racism, prejudice, terrorists, difficult finances, all types of hardship. How long is this Mesirut Nefesh? For as long as you're there. As long as you can take it. If that's your whole life, let it be your whole life. If that's the last year of your, last year of your life, let it be that. The point is, you should know, you want to live in Eretz Yisrael, in comfort, with peace, with success, have the ability to make, fulfill mitzvot, that you cannot do anywhere else, it requires mesirut nefesh. Last thing is, if you want to attain Torah, if you want to attain Torah, you want to become Talmit Chacham, you cannot become a Talmit Chacham. You cannot even attain Torah without Mesirut Nefesh. Without self-sacrifice. Impossible. How long is a sacrifice? Is it one minute? Is it one hour? Is it one year? Is it if you, let's say for example, you don't sleep for a year. You only sleep, I don't know, maybe two hours a day. Two, three hours a day. For a whole year. Is that enough for you to get Torah? What if you do some of the tricks to keep yourself up? You put your legs into a bucket of ice. Feels really good. Especially when your legs go numb. Your legs go numb after a while. You put them in ice because you want to stay up. It's late at night. It's four o'clock in the morning. You worked all day. You've been studying. Your eyes are bleeding already. You want to study some Torah, but you want to stay up. You're tired. You're a normal human being. So what do you do? You put your legs into a bucket of ice. And when they go numb, it doesn't feel that fun. If you do that for a year, does it mean anything? What do you think? It's easy to stay up at night. You think it's easy to learn Torah? What do you think? It's just like reading a book? Oh yeah, I read it when I was... One guy tells me, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I keep falling asleep when I'm studying. I don't know. I'm like, where do you study? He goes, I study in bed. I study in bed. I said, yeah, bed is there for sleeping. Not for studying Torah. A bed is there for sleeping, not for studying Torah. You don't study in bed. You read books in bed, not Torah books. Read Harry Potter or something. You don't read Torah in bed. 
Torah is an instruction set. It's not a fiction book, non-fiction, or fiction, or whatever you call it. So now you want to, if you do this, if you sacrifice, you sacrifice, you sacrifice, a whole year you don't sleep. Two years, three years, four years, five years. Is that enough? You become Tamit Chacham? No. No. You know what's enough? Every second of your life. Not all your whole life. Not your whole life. Every second of your life. Every second of your life. Why? Because to be a Talmud Chacham doesn't only have to do with learning. Because as we saw David HaMelech tell us in Tehilim number 19, Hashem gives you the wisdom. So that means you have to constantly do something to convince Him to give you that wisdom. What did you do today to convince Hashem to give you a chidush? Oh, I learned. For how long? 15 minutes on the way here. You think Hashem is going to give you a chidush for your 15 minutes homeless learning? What did you learn? Oh yeah, I heard uh, some music uh, slash uh, Torah. Like, where is music slash Torah? Yeah, there was singing in the background. And there was somebody saying something too, so I learned something. What did you learn? Oh, I forgot. I forgot. Rabotai, every second, every second, a big Rosh Yeshiva came to Arav Ovadia, Allah wa Shalom. He told him, call the Rav. Tell me the truth. How did you have such a schut, such a merit? How did you inherit such a merit to have such a brain? You remember tens of thousands of books by heart, tens of thousands. If I can remember a single book, any book, even if it's three pages, by heart, I already feel like I got Olam Abba. Tens of thousands of books. Tens, I mean, you're serious. Can you even, can you count tens of thousands? Imagine one, two, three, tens of thousands. A journalist came to his house one time after he wrote an article about Ravavadya. He says, nah, nobody should listen to him. He was already like 82, 83 years old. No one should listen to Ravavadya anymore. He's old. He probably forgot stuff. So even though Ravavadya never really paid attention to these reshaim, these wicked journalists, this one got his attention. So he invited him to the house. 82, 83 years old. He invited the journalist to the house. He says, you wrote in your article about me that I, I forgot, I forget things. Where did you get that from? Did I say something wrong in my lectures you watch? He goes, no, I never watch your lectures. He goes, so where did you get it from that I forget? He goes, no, I figured you, naturally, for the Rav, uh, with all due respect, you're 80 years old, you're 85 years old. You forget, people forget, even more so when they get old. He goes, maybe I didn't forget. Can we check, can we test it? Because no, come on, you want me to come out with another article and embarrass you even more after I confirm that you're a human being like everybody else? Everybody forgets, Kvodarav. He goes, why do you care? You already wrote the article. Worst case, best case scenario, maybe you have another article you write your, that you confirmed everything you said. What do you have to lose? He says, okay, no problem. He says, okay, you see the books here? He sees there's 60,000 books. 60, 60,000. Some say 40,000. I don't really care what it is, even if it's a thousand. But it's not. It's something like, seriously, like 40 to 60,000 books. He didn't have walls in the house. There was no walls. It was just books. The, the walls, the books made the walls. 
Talk about bigger than a library. His house was a whole floor, just books. No walls. He says, see those books? Pick any book you want. Just tell me the name of the book, the author's name, who wrote it, and the page number that you're on. Open it anywhere, the page number, and the first word. Now the journalist, who was completely secular, and did not know what Da'at Torah means, did not know who Rav Ovadia was, didn't know anything. He just knew how to write articles of, full of lies. That's all he knew. He thought this is like a trick, it's a joke. He's like, Kvod Arav knew it's a joke. He goes, no, pick any book you want. So he climbed the ladder, looking for a book that maybe, for sure, had a lot of dust on it. Why? What, what's the dust part? If it had dust on it, that means for sure he hasn't read it in a while. If it's brand new, maybe he just read it now. So if he has a good memory, maybe he remembers it, or maybe it's a trick. But if it has dust on it, cobwebs on it or something, for sure he hasn't looked into it. So at the best case scenario, maybe he looked into it five years ago, ten years ago, but it's a while. So he went and he looked for something that's really like in the back. He took out a book, opened the book, said the name, said the author, said the page number, said the first word. After he said the first word, continued every single word for word, the rest of the page and the next page. He said, oh, hold on a second, let's do this again. He picked another book, same thing, same procedure. Open the book, gave him the title. Open the book anywhere. Told the page number, first word, word for word. One book, two books, three books, one after another. To the extent that the journalist wrote a new article and he said, not only was I wrong, which I think is the first time in the history of mankind that a journalist said he was wrong. Not only was I wrong about him being forgetful, but his memory is not a human being's memory. He's not a human being. He's not like the rest of us, he says. Not like the rest of us. What is memory? It's not for people. Regular people don't have such a thing. Even if you have a good memory. Even if you have photographic memory. It means nothing. You know, some people have photographic memory. They look at something, they remember it. Because no, no, this is something, this is something else. Something else. Now, he was born with a good memory. So, one of the big rabbis came to him one day and he says, Kvod Arav, how did you merit to have such a brain, such chokhmah, such memory. He says to him, man, you know, I, I go over my learning a lot. He says, for the Rav, I go over my learning a lot too. No, I go over, I go over a lot. I go over my learning. And he kept pushing and insisting and insisting. Tell me the truth, for the Rav, how did you do it? How did you do it, for the Rav? Please, tell me. I know it's not the learning. I learned too. Everybody learns, for the Rav. We're learning. It's not, we're not, he's not talking about the regular people. Tamit Chacham, Tamit Chacham, Tamit Chacham. Everybody, Tamit Chacham. He's not talking about the Ame Aratzot. He's not talking about the ignorant. Each one. Rosh Kolel, Rosh Yeshiva, Rosh Kolel, Rosh Yeshiva, author, this. Fine. It's for the Rav. Come on, we all do it. We went out, Rav Ovadia. What did you do? After enough pressure, Rav Ovadia says, you really want to know? He says, yes. He says, it all starts with your eyes. 
that was a Dayan, Betin, the Av Betin. And part of my job was dealing with divorces. So unfortunately, many of the women would come to the court and it would be immodest. They would be immodest. Now me being the Dayan, I can do whatever I want. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm the Dayan. No one's saying, hey, Kodarab, you shouldn't look. What do you mean? I'm helping her. Getting the get, getting the marriage, getting this, getting that. I'm helping her. He says, I never once, I never, never looked at these people. Never. So what would you do? The story goes is that Rabbi Vadya would look down and whatever the woman would see, would ask her questions without looking at the woman. And whatever she would say, he would write. He would write. And everybody would follow him and see he's writing. Wow, he's writing everything she says. Unbelievable. Such commitment. Such care. I mean, this woman barely knows the olive bed, but he's learning. He's writing everything she says. Unbelievable. But then his children said after he died, his children said, we knew who is a, who's, the, who, who's the best boy in a, in a day. Whoever was the best kid in the house got a reward. What was the reward? Abba would give us his drawing. So we asked Abba, we asked Obovadia, they asked their Abba, Abba, when you have time to draw, when you have time to draw, I mean, you're, you're Dayan, you're Posek, you're Gdolador, you're a big rabbi, you're a teacher, you give lecture after lecture, when you have time to draw, he says at the Bedin. Why at the Bedin? He says, because when the immodest women come, I can't look at them, I have to watch my eyes. So I have to, now if I, don't, if I just look down the whole time, She'll think that I'm, I don't care what she says. She'll be offended by it. Chas v'shalom to offend a bat Israel. So what do I do? I make it seem that I'm actually writing down everything she says. I don't need to write down everything she says. I understand what she's saying. I don't need to write it down. So every, I just ask her questions. And I'm writing, but in essence, really what I'm doing is I'm drawing. I'm drawing the picture. So she feels like I'm not disrespecting her, which I'm not. I'm paying attention to everything that she says, but I don't need to write down everything she is, she's saying. So what do I do instead? I make the drawings for you guys. For years. They always ask, where did he get these drawings? They're beautiful drawings. Where is he getting from? They're in the bedroom. He says, why? Watch my eyes. Watch my eyes. Watch my eyes. How do we know? Where do we get this from, Rabotai? In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 19. Verse 39, I'm sorry. It says the parasha that each and every single one of you say every day. Every day. Which parasha? The parasha in regards to tzitzit. Parasha in regards to tzitzit where Hashem speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu and He says to him, to let the people of Am Yisrael put on tzitzit. This is you do as part of your Shema Yisrael. It says, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe le'emor daber lebnei Yisrael V'amar ta'alem v'asu lahem tzitzit al kenfe bigdem ledorotam So this section, this paragraph that goes from verse 37, chapter 15, verse 37, all the way 
to uh, 40 and 41, has a secret. What's the secret? The secret in verse 39, it says, Rav Ovadia says, here it says, and you saw him, if you see him, who's him? You see God. If you see God, and you remember all of his mitzvot. Meaning, if you're constantly acting as if you see Hashem, He's right next to you. You're not going to look at any, a woman, a modest, modest woman. You're going to watch your eyes. Meaning, you're constantly thinking, Hashem is next to me. I'm not going to look at a modest woman. I'm not going to look at a woman that's not my wife. I'm not going to stare. I'm not going to misuse the eyes, the gift of eyes that He gave me. I'm going to see as if I see Hashem all the time. If you saw Him, you remember. What are you going to remember? Everything. You remember all of His mitzvot. What it says, that's the secret. You watch your eyes, you're going to remember Torah. You don't watch your eyes, you're not going to remember anything. You become a beeper. Erased at the end of the week. Erased at the end of the week. Waste of time. From here we learn that when Hashem said in Parashat Kedoshim, Kedoshim to you, Ki Kedosh Ani. Be holy, because I am holy. He wasn't just telling us to do something once in a while. He says, if you want to inherit my Torah, you must be Kadosh. You must sanctify yourself. You must make yourself holy. How do you start making yourself holy? Look what it says in the parasha. Watch your eyes. Holiness starts with these cameras that you have. Starts there. If you keep looking at dresses and shoes and hats and wigs and uh, and uh, the, the next door neighbor's uh, a house and the kitchen, there's nothing holy about you. But if you look at your kids and think about how can I help my kids become Kedoshim, how can I help my husband go learn more Torah, how can I help myself Learn more. You're looking at a Sefer Teilim a few times a day. You're looking at Brachot all day. You're looking at ways to make your family holy. You're going to be holy. If all you're looking at is uh, is Amazon, and all you're looking at is a uh, Shtuyot, you're looking at the next door neighbor, and more dresses, and more wigs, and more bags, and more this and more that, there's nothing holy about you. Even more so on the men. Even more so on the men. If all you're looking at is your colleagues and the girls working in the office and the, uh, the, your, your friend's new car and your friend's new house and the stock market and the television and the iPhones and the smartphones and the Bitcoins and all the shtiot in the world, when do you have time to look at God? When do you have time to be holy? Kedoshim to you starts with your eyes, Rabotai. It starts with your eyes. Why? That's, this, this, is the, this is the door. This is your, the door to your neshama. If you want to learn your Torah, you must open, you must watch your eyes. So here we see that even if a person is not born with a natural gift, he could still get it. Which leads us to the next point. Next point is, Kashal Ishmoa v'kashal Abed. The second type of student 
is a person who grasps slowly and forgets slowly. His loss is offset by his gain. So this is a person, takes him a while to get it. He has to go over. He has to go over things a few times before he gets it. But once he gets it, he acquires it as if it's permanent knowledge. It's in. Once it's in, it's in. The Mishnah says his loss of the fact that it takes him a while to learn is offset by his gain. Why? Because he's only going to need to learn it once or twice and he's finished. He's good. It becomes part of him. So ultimately he's going to acquire permanent knowledge, but what's the condition? How could he attain it? If he's patient with himself. Meaning, patient enough to keep going. Patient enough to say, listen, all my classmates, they're all geniuses, they listen to the teacher once, they get it. They all get 90s. You know, I had those, uh, those classmates. I remember as a kid, it would drive me crazy. It would drive me insane. There was like a handful of kids, maybe less, three or four kids, that literally it seemed like they never studied. They'd study like between each other, like 10 minutes before the test. When we get to, get to class, 10 minutes before the test, they studied and they get the best grades. It would drive me crazy because I tried to study and I got good grades too, but I knew I studied a lot. And I saw these people and they studied for 10 minutes. They looked at their notebook or something and they got the same grade or better sometimes. It would drive me insane. And I couldn't understand. Like, how come? I would ask questions about it. Like, how could it be? It's not fair. It's not this. You know, you have inner battles. So if a person is patient with himself and he continues going by ignoring the world around him, meaning the fact that they're not studying is completely irrelevant to you. The fact that they are studying is even more irrelevant to you. What the world around you is doing is irrelevant. You still have to do your job. The fact that she's modest or immodest should have no impact on your life. Many women contact me and say, listen, I want to take off the wig, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not welcome in my neighborhood. My uh, keila is full of women that are wearing wigs. I'm going to be the only one. They're saying this. They're saying that. They look like this. They look like that. I said, okay, they're going to go to Gainom. Do you want to go to Gainom with them or you want to go to Ganeden? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Oh, I want to go to Ganeden. Okay, so stop worrying about them. Yeah, but it's so hard. Yeah, it's hard if you ignore what I just asked you. Stop worrying about everybody else. Stop worrying about if everybody else is driving on Shabbat, if everyone's a criminal, and everyone's a liar, and everyone's this, and everyone... It doesn't make a difference. If everyone jumped off the bridge, you jump too? Maybe you would, but that, that means you're, you're abnormal. You shouldn't come to show anyway. I'm scared of you. It's like the joke I said yesterday. It's the best joke of the year. Best joke of the year yesterday, we said a joke, we have to repeat it. Once I have a good joke, I have to say it a couple of times. So, three guys are in a boat. The boat crashes. All three of them survive. They go on an island. Now, each one has a role. One guy cooks, the other one catches the fish, and the third guy prepares everything. 
And they occupy themselves. Some time passes. They get used to the life on the on the island. They lose hope of anybody else saving them. And they live their life. One day, the guy that catches the fish finds some type of uh, canister of some kind with a genie in it. little shed. little demon in it. It says, hey, I have a wish for each one of you guys. So the first guy, the guy that catches the fish, says, okay, one wish. What do you want? Get me out of here. Oh, he's gone. Second guy, the one that cooks, says, okay, what's your wish? Because get me out of here. Oh, he's gone. Third guy that's there, he's the guy that usually prepares everything. He says, okay, you have one wish. What do you want? He goes, ah, you know what? It's going to be kind of boring without my friends. Bring them back. Bring them back. Guy's living in a world of his own, but in reality, there's a lot of Musa and skill we can learn from here. You have to learn a lot of Musa from this. Why? Stop caring about everybody else. Stop caring about everybody else and what they're doing. Do your thing. You have to get the Gan Eden. They're not going to help you in Shemaim. The fact that they're Mechale Shabbat, they're eating non-kosher, and they're stealing, and they're, that's not going to help you in life. The fact that everyone's a criminal is not going to help you. Where do we learn it from? We learn it from Leah. We learn it from Avot HaKidoshim, the, 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 the matriarchs. Came from horrible families. One after another came from horrible families. They didn't come from uh, Lavan. Lavan, Rasha Merusha. Rasha Merusha. What kind of families they had. Why do you think the Torah mentions these people? It says, if they can become not only holy, but Mamash Kodesh Kodeshim, what excuse do you have? But the same token and the opposite. Just because you come from a good family doesn't give you a free a get-out-of-jail-free card. Where do we learn that from? Esav. His brother was a giant in Torah. His father and his grandfather. All giants. All Kodesh Kodeshim. Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. All related to Esav. But the Torah says, It Esav Saneti. I hated Esav, Hashem says. I hate Esav. Why? He knew the truth and still didn't do it. He knew not to wear a wig, but he still put it on. He knew not to gamble, but he still gambled. He knew not, uh, not to eat uh, non-kosher, but he still ate it. He knew not to go to the mixed beach, and he still went. He knew. He still did it. Oh, because my, all my friends are there. Okay, so you'll have a villa with them in Gainom. This, Rabotei, you have to understand, enough with the excuses of everybody's doing it, and everybody this, and everybody that. That's not going to help you in real life. And I'm telling you, I had a lot of people that called themselves my friends. A lot of people, thousands. A lot of them call my friends. The moment I needed them, all of a sudden they all ran away like rats. Like cockroaches. Run away when you turn on the light. When it's dark, nobody's paying attention. Cockroaches, rats, they infest the place. Well, as soon as you turn on some light, everybody's gone. It's the opposite with friends. Friends... As soon as you pretend like you have some light, you have some money, you have some success, you're, you're doing good, they're all on top of you like rats and cockroaches. The second you have a problem, they all run away like rats and cockroaches. Don't invest your... Don't, don't depend on these people. Don't depend on these people. They're not going to do anything for you in, in the end. They're not going to do anything for you. I'm not alone. Ask any old man. Ask any old timer. How many friends you have? They'll start laughing in your face. Friends? You still believe in friends, son? 
You still believe in friends? Wow, you're a youngster. You're young. You still believe in friends, son? Wow. Ha, I remember when I believed in friends. When was that? 1932. Any old time will tell you, what friends? Your friends, be friends with God. Be friends with your spouse. Nobody else. So ultimately a person that is going to ignore what everybody else is doing is going to, can use that to his benefit. How? He's going to be much more patient with himself. He's not going to care if everybody else is studying or not studying. If everybody else is getting it easier or not easier. He's going to do his thing. He's going to be a machine. He's going to open the book and he's going to read. He's going to look at the mitzvot, he's going to do them. Does it make a difference if everybody else is talking in shul? He's not talking. Why? Because he knows it's wrong. Does it make a difference if everybody else is stealing? He's not doing it. Why? Because he knows it's wrong. The fact that everyone's doing it doesn't make it right. If everyone's a thief, it doesn't mean you're allowed to steal. If everyone is looking at immodest or looking at something immodest, doesn't mean it doesn't give you the right to do the same thing. It doesn't make it right because everybody's doing it. How do you know what's right? You have an instruction book. It's called the Torah. Torah means oraah, means instructions. Read it, learn it, remember it, and go over it. Over and over and over again until your last day in this world. So a person that takes a while to get what I just said, to understand what I just said, press rewind, go on YouTube again, press rewind, go on bezatashem.org, press rewind, read again, 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 every day. That's why last night we read the, the letter from Yigeret Ramban. He says, read this letter every day. For how long? Forever. Until you get it. Yeah, but I read it. I know by heart already. No, no, no. Not until you know by heart. Until you get it. What does it mean until you get it? Until it's become one with you. You're doing what it says completely. It's become your natural state to act this way. That's what it means, get it. Now Rabbeinu Yonah says on a side note, the fact, the fact is that throughout most of history, with a few exceptions, such as the times of when we were in the desert, or the times of the Bet HaMikdash, or today, or 70 years ago, for the most part, Am Yisrael has been a poor people in money. If you ask any of the old timers, a hundred years ago, poverty was the norm for Am Yisrael. Poverty was the norm. We lived through major poverty. There are a few exceptions to the case. In Germany, we were very rich right before the Holocaust. Right now, Am Yisrael is very rich in America. Before the next Holocaust, Hashem Echem. During the Bet HaMikdash, first one, second one, first one was, was so rich, there was literally gold in the streets. Gold in the streets. Richer than today and every, ever in history. But we always have to be prepared for the worst. So Rabbeinu Yonah says, when there are limited funds that are available to support Torah students, there's poverty. 
You can't support all these kids studying all day. Everybody's got to take care of themselves. And all you know, there's only a few that uh, there's only a few, a little bit of money that people are able to give for Torah. He says this priority has to be given to a person who has poor grasp but a strong memory over a quick-minded person who doesn't retain well. Why? Because the student with the good memory, but that takes a while to actually remember it, that takes a while to actually learn it, he has a good memory. Him, he has a better chance of succeeding to the extent of becoming a teacher himself. Because if you can actually get this one that takes a while to learn, you get him to actually learn, he's going to remember it. If he's going to remember it, that means he's also developed certain character traits to make him a good teacher too. That means he's going to retain the information, he's going to be able to teach it. Whereas the guy that grasps really quickly, but doesn't remember it, he's not only has bad midot, but on top of it, he's, uh, he's not going to be able to teach anything. He forgot. He forgot everything. So when there's not that much money, you invest in the guy that takes more time. The student of Rabbi Preda. That's who you invest in. Rabbi Chaim of Olojin says that his teacher, the Vilna Gaon, constantly counseled him to give extra attention to children of poor families. Why? He says because their parents' lack of funds prevented them from getting the best tutors and study arrangements. But consequently, their true potential was probably unwrapped. The Gaomi Vilna believed in the Gemara Masichet Nedarim that in a different sense, in a different sense, he says that really we see time and time again throughout history that the biggest giants in Torah actually came from poor people. Like, materially poor. One example is Rabbi Akiva. Another example is Hilel Zaken. Hilel Zaken would make one uh, one uh, agora per week, one, uh, one coin per week, working the whole week cutting wood. Half of it he'd give to his family to feed them. The other half he'd pay the kola so he could go learn Torah. Half of his money goes to his family, here, eat. The other half, I need to learn. In those days, they used to pay to go learn Torah. Not like today, we have to pay people to come. He used to pay. One day, he let us a can. Couldn't work. Why? It was snowing. So he couldn't cut the wood, so he couldn't make the money. So he wanted to go learn Torah anyway. And the, uh, the bodyguard, the bouncer, nine feet tall, says, Hey, hey, sorry, sir. Do not enter. Yeah, uh, if I let you in, I have to let everybody else in free. Can't do it. That's strict rules. Now, he didn't care about the rules. He cared about Torah. He says, I came here to learn Torah. So, it's okay. I can't break the rules. They don't want to, I can't go in. That's fine. It's their prerogative. It's, it's their right. There's rules. I can't break them. But, doesn't mean I can't learn Torah. What am I going to do? He climbed the roof. He climbed the roof. And he listened. There was a glass on top of the roof. And he listened to the glass. Now, all this time, there's most, more snow coming down. But he wanted to listen to the teachings of Shmaya and Avtalion. 
the two Gdolei Adol, both converts, both of them were converts, became the heads of the Sanhedrin, became the giants of the generation. They're teaching, and Hillel Hazaken is in the roof with snow on top of him, learning all night with them. The next morning, it's Shabbat, Shmaya and Aftalil come into the uh, place, and they see it's dark. So usually, light comes into the building. So they look up, and they see, under all the snow, there's an there's a image of a body. There's a body on the roof. Body on the roof, is it? Somebody's there. They climb the, they climb the building. They saw it's really a person. It's Hillel. They don't know who Hillel is. They know it's Hillel. They took him down, put it in, and they violated Shabbat to save his life. They lit a fire. They lit a fire to bring him back to life. They said for somebody like this, they realized what happened. They realized he was on the roof to learn Torah. He says for him, it's worth it to violate Shabbat to save his life. They lit a fire to bring him back to life. They brought him back to life and they said, you sacrifice your life to learn Torah. From now on, you are our personal student. And he became the Gdol The head rabbi of all of Am Yisrael. And on top of it, they find out who is he. He's one of the descendants of David HaMelech. One of the descendants of David HaMelech. Mashiach comes from Hillel. Poor is nothing. The Gaon Mivina says, the Gemara says, Izaru, Bibne Aniim, Shemeem, it's a Torah. Be careful of the sons of the poor, because from there comes the poor, there comes the Torah. The Gaon Mivina says, he understands that, his understanding is, the giants, the Torah, is going to come from poor people. Why? Mesirut Nefesh. Sacrifice, they're used to sacrificing. If he still learns Torah through poverty, it's going to be big. It's going to be something. It's going to be special. It's going to be special. We're almost done for the night. The key to understand, Rabotai, is that there's no free lunches when it comes to Torah. There's no free lunches. A person needs to know that, yes, a mem- having a good memory is very good. But it's not going to get you free lunch. The Lev Aryeh, Rabbi Uda Aryeh, says that, uh, he writes in his, uh, in his book, Lev Aryeh, there's not a person on earth who doesn't want a good memory. Because what good is a sharp mind if one will only forget his learning? He says, every person wants a good memory. Any person that knows, has a little bit of sechel, has a little bit of mind, knows that the value of a good memory, in any aspect, not just learning to in any aspect. Someone, and he gives different examples, because someone that's in business, he can remember all of his contacts, all of his customers, all of the deals, all of the uh, ratios, uh, markets, and so on. And he gives different examples of different people that have had good memory throughout the generations, both secular and uh, religious, uh, meaning Jews and non-Jews. He says, Koresh, Koresh 
was the king of Paras. Kores knew the name of every single one of his soldiers. Tens and tens of thousands of soldiers. He knew the name of every single one of them. Such was his memory. Such was his memory. He literally knew the name, first name, last every name of every single one of his soldiers. He says, the guy never forgot anything. He says, Julius Caesar, he knew 22 languages, 22 languages, and he would write about seven different subjects. He would write different things, different memoirs and books and so on, about seven different subjects simultaneously, at the same time. At the same time. Imagine, you write you have, uh, seven different notebooks, you write the first sentence, this, this one, second one, and this one, and then all seven different ones. Now anyone that's ever spent time writing, you know it takes time. It takes a lot of concentration. I enjoy writing, but it's mamash. By the time I finish writing, it's like half my soul left. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Because to write something good, listen, anybody can write. Put some words together, write it. But for it to be good, you have to must sacrifice a lot of time and effort to it because writing by itself, a lot of people write, but it's 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 it's, wor- it's, it's worthless. It's toilet paper. Why? No one's going to read it because it's either boring or it doesn't flow or no one understands what you mean anyway. To write where the average person or a scholar can actually use what you wrote, it's a, it's, it takes, aside from aside from talent... It takes an extraordinary amount of effort to empathize in both the shoes of the scholar and the normal, and the regular person. Because anything, anyone that writes anything valuable, it has to be understood by both. If you're only writing for scholars, good for you, but you're not you're not going to reach the, your your maximum potential that way. If you only write for the for the average guy, you're never going to get the, uh, the 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 success that you want. Just dealing with the regular people. <coughs> so now, when somebody says, I wrote an article, or I wrote a book, it's a big deal. In the world, they give they, they put a lot of big deal on people that write books. Anyone that wants to make it in life, they want to become famous, write a book. That's always, please. Anyone that wants to be famous, wants to be successful, wants people to give him some... Uh, thank you, Skin, it's uh, wants uh, people to give him some credibility. The uh, first thing to do, or main thing to do, is write a book. Both in business and otherwise. Why? Once you write a book, you're somebody. Once you write a book, you're somebody. Oh, he's an expert. In what? I don't know, he wrote a book about something. Let's see what he wrote about. Oh, he wrote uh, like Dor uh, Kasuto. He wrote about little kids uh, playing with marijuana and, uh, and, and, and parrots oh he's an expert in what? In parrots and marijuana that's what he wrote about he wrote, he wrote uh, some book that children's book yeah he wrote a I'm serious he wrote a children's book he wrote a children's book he wrote some other book uh, supposedly that says uh, it's too much for you it's called I don't know how I remember this stuff with this guy it's, uh, it's like a tikkun for me it's like a kartsia it's like a tick it's a, he wrote a book, it's too much for you. It's probably just blank pages. It's too much for you to read to us. So just look at blank pages and pay me 20 bucks for it. It's too much for you to learn to us. So I learned it for you. Just look at blank pages. It's like the, uh, somebody made a, a, a joke 
And he wrote uh, a book with the cover says, The History of the Palestinian People. History of Palestinian People, 300 pages. The guy opens the book, what is it? Blank pages. There is no history of Palestinian people. There's no such thing as Palestinian people. It's a creation. It's a man-made creation in the last 70 years. There's no such thing as Palestinian people. It's Saudi Arabian people, Egyptian people, and Jordanian people. There's no such thing as Palestinian people. So somebody made a joke with the cover saying history of Palestinian people. So anyway, in the real world, if you want to attain a certain level of credibility, of success, of honor, and so on, by the public, both the general public and the scholarly alike, you have to write a book. If you want to share your knowledge, you have to write a book. It's one way of, uh, of, of uh, sharing your knowledge. I believe it was the Chafetz Chaim, I believe, it might be wrong, who said writing a book is like a thousand lectures. Writing a book is like a thousand lectures because the book is going to survive beyond you. One thing that's happened since the Chafetz Chaim is we have now internet. When you do a lecture, that lecture could be itself like a thousand books because the lecture also survives beyond you and somebody can watch that lecture forever. Or at least as long as Hashem allows BezalTheShem.org and YouTube to work. So now, writing a book, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. But a person needs to know that writing a book by itself, if it's a book that's illegible, like I know this one guy, was very smart. Very smart. Rabbi. He knows some Torah, for sure. Deals with some interesting things. And he wrote a book. I tried looking into it, the book. I couldn't get past the second page. Could get. Now, I thought I was alone. Because, you know, everybody has their taste of what they like, what they don't like, what flows for you, what doesn't flow. Now, incidentally, incidentally, I spoke to a friend of mine. This has happened a while ago, well, maybe two years ago. A friend of mine, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Zitron. Rabbi Zitron. And uh, it came up in conversation. Oh, do you see the book of this guy? Or something how it came up. And we both looked at each other. Like, yeah. Like, he, goes, he goes, listen, honestly, I couldn't read it. Like both of us said it. Oh, honestly, I couldn't read it. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. It's just, it's just, I just couldn't do it. I tried. He actually he got much further than I did. I think he almost got to the whole book. But he said I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It was really hard. Not that the subject is here. He goes, I've been studying this specific subject for 20 years. He knows a lot about the subject. He goes, I was looking for something special. I was looking for something new. But the way it was written, he goes, I, couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. It was tough. So just because a person is smart doesn't mean they have the talent to write. Writing is a different talent. It's not the same thing as speaking. Speaking is the same thing as writing. And so on and so forth. So, when a person writes, when you hear of a person wrote, like Julius Caesar, wrote about seven different subjects simultaneously, you can see the value of memory over them. And you literally need to know seven different subjects. It's a big deal. And Le Valier says, and these, and he has other examples in his book, other examples of other smart, uh, you know, uh, good memory kings and his, you know, throughout history and so on. 
says, and these people, these people, these seven subjects, all this stuff, knew everybody's name and so on. He goes, they weren't even considered like a little, little tick, a little zvuv, like a, a, a fly next to the genius of our sages. With all kola kavod that they knew 20 languages and they knew a uh, 100,000 uh, people's names and how to write seven books at the same time simultaneously. Kola kavod, good for you. He says they weren't even equivalent to a bug, a little fly next to the wisdom, the memory and, and, the, and, the, and the know-how of our sages. And he says, I know myself that if Hashem wanted to ever give me a gift, I would only ask for one thing. And what is it? A good memory. A good memory. Why? He says, because I know if I had a good memory, I would be like Shlomo Melech. He says, Mamash. Now in today's world, Rabotai, you don't really need to be Shlomo Melech to become Shlomo Melech. Why? Because Hashem made it easy for you. Better said, Hashem made it easy for us. In the old days, if you wanted to study a book, first of all, you had to find out who has the book. Not everybody had the book. Usually the rich people had a book. There was usually every city had a couple of rich people. One of them would have the book. Then you have to send him a letter to confirm he has the book. After you confirm he has the book, you have to invite yourself there. He's like, can I stay at your house to study this book? For how long? However long it takes. Six months, a year, two years. Meaning you have to leave your family for six months or a year or two years or however long it took you to go stay at this rich stranger's house. For what? To go study a book. Or two books or ten books or twenty books or whatever it is. It wasn't like uh, you could borrow the book like a library. Oh, I'll give it back to you when I'm finished. Are you crazy? You study here. Today, anything you want is a button away. What button away? You want to buy it? Go to Amazon. Go to Art Scroll. Go to Feldheim. Go to Seferim Center. That's where I buy most of my books. Seferim Center has extraordinary collection. I don't get paid for this. It's just because I like them. It's no advertising yet. All the books you get, I buy from everybody, but uh, lately I've been buying more from them. Um, the point is, is that all you gotta do is you press, book arrives at your house a few days later. Any book you want. If you don't have any money, there's HebrewBooks.com. Over seventy thousand books for free. Seventy thousand books for free. Online, you can read them online. Seventy thousand books are free. When you finish, let me know. Not enough, you go to Safari or you go to any of these other apps that you can just, on the same phone, on the same computer, you press the button, the book appears in front of your face. Meaning, you don't have to travel. Not only you don't have to travel to another city, you don't even have to travel to a store. You don't have to leave your house. All you got to do is take the book and read. That's it. Open the book, read. This is the first page. There you go. First line. Second line. Third line. Fourth line. Oh, you finished. We do a siyum right now. Wow, you finished the first page. Bravo. Siyum You finished the first page. Okay, let's get the second page now. 
Oh, second page is the drawing. Okay, third page. The point is, Abutai, Hashem made it so easy for us to learn Torah. That's the kitrug, though. That's the case against us. That's what the prosecutor is going to bring to judgment. Hashem yachem aleinu. That's what he's going to bring against us in Shemayim. They say, look, Hashem, you made it so easy for him. The books in his house, he has 500 books. He read only 10 of them. The rest of them just looked good in the, in the, in the shelf. You gave him more than enough money, he could buy any book he wanted. So you can't complain that he didn't have any more books. You gave him a phone, he has books. You gave him a computer, he has books. You have millions and millions of books. What do you do instead? You play it on the computer on Facebook just to see what his friend was doing over the weekend. You wanted to see what does the plant look like after you put it on fire on YouTube. What did he do with himself, Hashem? And what do you think? Oh, but he studied when? In 1932. 1932, he studied once. So you say, that's the key It's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing that Hashem made it easy. It's a bad thing because if we don't use it, then we're misusing the gift. We're misusing the gift that Hashem gave us. The gift of Torah, it's easy. It's attainable. No one's killing you for it. But you have to start killing yourself for it. So Bezat Hashem, this is the first two parts out of the four. First two students out of the four. Bezat Hashem, next week we'll go over the next two. I think we covered enough. But uh, we see here that there's a lot to know. There's a lot more to learn here. Uh, Bezat Hashem, we'll cover the rest of it next week. Any questions? Same price. Don't all jump. Relax, guys. Relax. Relax. One at a time. One at a time. Okay, we said that, Hashem, I know you guys are tired, I'm tired, everybody's tired. But we said the whole shit, you're not allowed to be tired. <laughs> Nobody's listening to me, you see? Two hours of talking now, a single person is not tired. You're not allowed to be tired. Are you people online tired? They're not tired, they're online. Actually, by the way, it's actually a good trick. Another trick. You guys want tricks to stay up at night? If you're studying Torah, stay up at night. Not if you're watching YouTube. Studying Torah, unless you're watching me, watching Shul Torah. Um, no, there's a trick. If you're studying Torah, reading a book, it's tough in your eyes. It's tough and everything. So first and foremost, you have to read out loud. Read out loud. That helps you stay up. Now, it's hard to remember this, and it's hard to do it. So sometimes you want to read out loud, but you just don't have the energy. So you're going to get tired faster that way. I fight that Yetzirah every night. It's hard. But there is another way to give yourself a little boost. Most people like to drink coffee or eat something or chew gum. Uh, there's a couple of things. Number one, if you chew ice, if you chew ice, you know, naturally you can't go to sleep if you chew ice. But it's also not good for your teeth. It makes holes in your teeth. So there is different little things that you can do. One thing that you can do is if you see yourself getting really, really tired, and you're reading a book, you get really, really tired, then take, have already set some type of lecture on your phone or your computer or whatever it is, usually the phone, and uh, press play and watch the lecture for like five, ten minutes. Watch the lecture five, ten minutes, and you'll see you'll have uh, another, you watched five, ten minutes of Torah anyway, but you'll also see that you got yourself another 15 to 30 minutes worth of strength to read the book again. And the reason why is because the impact 
that the light from the phone has on your eyes and your brain wakes you up. Wakes you up. That's why a lot of people complain they can't sleep at night. It's not that they can't sleep at night. They're playing with their phone all night. You play with your phone and you're not going to be able to sleep. You want to go to sleep? Turn off the phone. No, no, but I'm just watching it before I go to sleep. Yes, you're not going to go to sleep. You're not going to go to sleep. You want to, if you want, you know, that's it's really, you're not going to go to sleep. So it affects you. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing to uh, listen to Shul Torah uh, before you go to sleep, but the point is, is that you can't watch it. Once you watch it, it's a, it has a different impact on your head, on your brain. More tricks next week, Bezat Hashem, and also hopefully Bezat Hashem next week we're going to get to the secret of having of how to attain Ruach HaKodesh. We still haven't even touched the surface yet. So, Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'amen.